Good morning, everyone. All of those here and at home, we uh, appreciate you joining us today. Pray that you'll hear a word from the Lord as we look into his word. Let me just give you a little bit more instruction about this prayer, a week of prayer and fasting. Many of you are asking questions. What are we doing this for? A uh, couple of reasons. One, uh, it's one of the spiritual disciplines that we uh, want to use in the Christian life, and not all of us have encountered all of the spiritual disciplines. Fasting is one of those, prayer is one of those, and we're going to combine them and do what Jesus did, <laughs> fast and pray, to find out what God's will is for our life. So it's two-pronged. One is uh, for you personally to go deeper in your relationship with God. There may be things in your life that you're coming up against a barrier or a challenge or something that you just keep failing at, that you really need God's power in your life. This is a week of focused prayer. Instead of having lunch on Tuesday, spend that hour to pray. Instead of uh, watching uh, TV for three hours a night, use that time this week for prayer. Give up something that you would normally do in order to spend focused time in prayer. And so we've provided a booklet. It's a devotional guide for every day. You can take it from Monday through Sunday. Use it to guide yourself into the presence of God, answer the questions that are there. Use it for your family devotions. Sit around the kitchen table at night. Go through that, that uh, devotional time, answer the questions together. And then the second thing is not just individual going deeper in our relationship with God, but as a church. What I want to do is have you listen to God throughout the week, write down in the margins what you hear God saying to you. And then on Sunday night, we're going to come here together for a time of worship and listening. I want to hear what God is saying to you. This is a body of Christ. This is not God talking to me and disseminating all the amazing things that I know out of my brain into your minds. This is me listening to what God is saying to you so that we can decide what it is God is doing in this church and where he's guiding us. So our visioning for the future depends on you. If you don't take this time to, to spend time with God, we won't know what God is laying on your heart. So Sunday night is really important. Come together uh, we'll have microphones down here on the floor. <clears throat> we'll be listening. What has God been saying to the body? And then putting that together with the staff and with the elders together saying, we really sense God is wanting to do something new in this church. He's leading us down a road that we have never gone before. But we're going to trust in faith that he will provide what we need for all of the things he's asking us to do so that we will get his results instead of ours in, in our effort. So uh, we, ha we will have enough booklets for every family to take one home. If you can come every night of the week, I think you'll be blessed. If you can make it one night, two nights, three nights. If your life group says, you know what, instead of meeting this week, we're going to go to the church. With the young adults on Saturday, instead of their activity, we're going to come here and pray. This is going to be a wonderful time to gather together, small groups. Uh, we're going to teach on prayer each night for a few minutes, and then we're going to pray. And we're going to have a different kind of a focus every night. So it may be on our marriages. It may be on our kids. It may be beyond our city or our world, our nation, the things that God is doing around us. We're going to gather together with one heart and one mind before him and see the amazing things he can do through us. Let's pray. Father God, this is a day you set apart for yourself. You rested from your work and you wanted to spend time with your people. And so you asked us to come before you on a Sabbath day to focus on you, put our worries, our cares, our work, work behind, and uh, just to listen to you, to worship you, to praise you. I pray, Father, you will join us today, that your spirit will be evident in this place. You will touch our minds and our hearts and our very soul, 
as we listen to the words that Paul wrote in his book to the Roman church. Guide us through this, this passage today, Father, that you would be glorified in all that we're, we're doing. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, we are looking in the book of Romans. It's, um, it's a challenging book. In fact, my, uh, my second cousin sent me a text uh, last week after I started in the book of Romans, and he says, Tom, I'm so proud of you. Hardly any pastors like to preach the book of Romans because it's got so much stuff in there that's hard to talk about. I'm going, well, here we go. <laughs> let's, see, let's see how it works out. And so even in the first chapter, we have some challenging things to deal with. But this is what Paul was dealing with with the church in Rome. He was already facing these exact same things in the church that we face today. He doesn't pull any punches. He's just pretty honest and blunt about it. And so in the very first chapter, he lays out the whole reason why we need a gospel. And it's not a pretty picture. And a lot of people seem to think that humanity is just wonderful. I mean, I go home to my suburban house. I have a nice garden. I've got a good job. I've got great kids. And life's good. I get paid every month. And um, I get to have vacations. And uh, we're sometimes a little bit oblivious to what's actually going on in the rest of the world. This is like 10% of the world gets to live like we do. 90% struggle. And there's a lot of stuff that they're facing. I had uh, a test uh, this week in North Vancouver, and the fellow that I, the technician, he, was, he had come from, from El Salvador, running from uh, Sandinistas. And uh, he says, yeah, and I mean, I had no life there. I was going to be killed. Uh, going, wow. <laughs> I know so many people that are refugees from nations that have had unrest. We've had terrible things going on. Even today, around the world, it's not a pretty place to be. There are, there are great stuff going on, and people are having great lives. There's no, no doubt, but we're in a fallen world, and sin seems to be winning. And so Paul, at the end of, uh, near the end of first, uh, Romans chapter 1, beginning in uh, verse 16, he says, uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He's setting out the fact that the gospel is... It's everything. Everything comes down to the gospel. And he says, I'm not ashamed because it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And as it is written, the just will live by faith. And he's actually quoting Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4, who said the same thing in the Old Testament. Faith has always been the standard for people's acceptability to God. They come to him by faith. Read uh, Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter. It's always been about faith. If you are a follower of God, faith will have a dominant part in your life. We don't have to apologize for what the gospel says because, it is, because of what it has the power to do. I'll say that again. We don't have to apologize for what the gospel says because of what it has the power to do. And that's what's going to happen in the rest of this chapter. So we're seeing the beginning of the good news in the book of Romans. The, the beginning of the good news and the reason for having the gospel in the first place. Verse 18 starts with the word for. So he ends up with the just will live by faith, and now he's going for. <laughs> and here's the reason why. For. Wherefore is there a for? Paul is about to give the reason for the gospel. He's going to juxtapose what is righteous against what God considers to be unrighteous. He's going to talk about uh, how to be saved later, but right now he's going to talk about why we need to be saved. So just to be 
clear on what righteousness is. I'm, the title of my message is uh, Righteousness uh, Undone, I think. Uh, because right from the very beginning, God shows Adam and Eve what righteousness looks like. And within a matter of days, it seems like, it was messed up, undone. And it's been that way ever since. So righteousness, if you've, if you've seen, how many seen Finding Nemo? Anyone? Movie? Yeah, I see those hands. So do you remember when he was looking for this, what is it, south? I don't know, it's a current going through the, the water trying to get down to uh, Australia. Um, all these turtles are floating, and uh, they sound like uh, California surfer dudes. And uh, they're going, righteous, righteous! You know, it's not, not that kind of righteousness, you know? Gnarly, dude. This is a different kind of righteousness. Righteousness, uh, some people think, is um, being perfect or being holy. That's not what this righteousness is talking about. Right, righteousness in God's eyes, from my understanding, essentially means to meet God's expectations for us. And truthfully, they are doable. Like they're reasonable expectations. He doesn't put burdens on us that we can't do just to see us fail and, and, and be miserable. He's saying, no, my, the righteousness, what I expect of my people, is doable or I wouldn't ask it of you. It is possible. He declares people righteous who sincerely love and follow him, who listen to him when he speaks to them, who follow his commands, none of which is actually that hard to do. It's a matter of our will. Not my will, God, but yours be done. we got to put our will in alignment with his. So unrighteousness is the opposite, meaning immoral, wicked, evil, corrupting justice. It's when people choose wrong living over right living. So some of the most common challenges I have faced when it comes to talking with people about God is dealing with their misunderstandings of who God actually is. They come up with their own understanding and idea of what God must be like and what he expects from people. And they either go uh, one way or the other on this. One extreme, the, the one extreme is that he's a grandfatherly, kind, generous, non-judgmental fellow who just wants everyone to be okay and come into his heaven and, and have a good time for eternity. And the other extreme is that he's a harsh and judgmental, uh, legalistic, heavy-handed person that wants to let only the best of the best to enter into his heaven. And so why try? I can't succeed. I can't be perfect. So what's, what's even the point? And Paul is saying there is, there is a point. And you, you can be acceptable. Righteousness can be achieved, but with God's help. John 17, 3 says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Not the God that we make up with our own minds, not the, the God that we invent and then want to serve that God, but the God that has been revealed in his word. The, the real and true and authentic God is what it's all about, just knowing him. And we can know about him, we can read the Bible and get lots of information, but we can actually know him personally. We can actually have a relationship with God. We can know him intimately. It's not knowing about God that matters, it's knowing him as a friend. As, as the one who has created us and wants to have a relationship. So, and one of the more serious misconceptions, and I've heard this quite often, about God is that he is inept at handling evil in the world. People think that because there's so much oppression and want and violence, greed and misery, that God is weak or uninterested or ambivalent towards it all, towards it all. Perhaps a good representative of this way of thinking, I read this quote some years ago from 
actor Stephen Fry in a 2015 interview. Uh, the headline uh, after his interview read this. Stephen Fry under police investigation for blasphemy after branding God an utter, an utter maniac. The, the Irish police were actually considering him blasphemous. Why? Well, because this is what he said. He was asked, if you were to stand before God, what would you say to him? And he said, I would say, how dare you create a world in which there is such misery? It's not our fault. It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-spirited, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? Why would God allow such evil? There couldn't be a God, or at least there couldn't be a good God. If he would allow all of this evil to happen on this earth, I've heard that so many times. Well, Fry is basically blaming God for humanity's problem. Humanity created this, not God. God did not create evil. He does not create evil. He, does not, he doesn't have any pleasure in people performing evil on others. The truth is that God didn't create a world of misery and evil full of injustice and pain. In fact, since the Garden of Eden... God has been trying to rescue his creation from the recklessness and selfishness and greed of mankind who insists on polluting and stripping and de depleting the world resources. He has been trying to preserve the weak against the depravity of the strong. He reminds his people over and over and over again, take care of the weak, take care of the vulnerable, watch out for the widows and the orphans and, and the strangers among you. You know, don't, don't leave anybody out. He's also utterly destroyed every single godless tyrant, empire, dynasty, and kingdom throughout history and will hold them to account in their atrocities against humanity. Pol Pot, Artaxerxes, Pinochet, Stalin, Hitler, they're all dead, awaiting judgment. God does not stand for unrighteousness and evil in the world. It may not come in our time or in our timeline, but God is not unaware, and God does act. Romans 1 says, well, let me back up. At the same time he's dealing with all of this evil, he's also at the same time preserving the souls of the saints, the faithful, the righteous, and the martyrs until the final days of judgment when they will all be vindicated and rewarded for their sacrifice and life of faithfulness. So Romans 1, verse 18 says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For he has shown it to them. He says his wrath is going to be poured out on all ungodliness and unrighteousness. He's not <laughs> unaware, and he is going to deal with it thoroughly. So, Let's be honest, people generally know the difference between right and wrong. We, we know uh, that I shouldn't speed when I'm driving on the Trans-Canada. I know that, but, you know, it's so fun to go fast. I mean, I wish all roads were like Audubon so I could just hit the pedal to the metal and, and zoom down into the horizon. But there's rules. And we saw someone pulled over to the side of the road today reminded that there are rules. The people 
They can tell what a truth is and what a lie is. We generally know that. I mean, kids know that. Dogs know that. You know, you can see them being in shame for ripping apart the pillow that they weren't supposed to touch. Like there's, they're embarrassed you know, because we know the difference between right and wrong, truth and lies, ungodliness and, and godliness. We just don't care. We just want to ignore the truth. It says in verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that people are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So God created us to enjoy his world. He, he created us to have fun. He created us to have an abundant life, to have wonderful relationships, to have joy filling us, to enjoy blessings in his presence and enjoying one another. But people chose differently. Right from the very beginning, Adam and Eve messed up. Their kids messed up. And every generation since has messed up. They've gone their own way and decided that they could take matters into their own hands. Pretty much every dystopian novel and movie, you know, about projecting into the future, what's going to happen with humanity. I remember seeing a lot of these as a kid. Every one of these, these types of futuristic movies shows that despite man's best intentions to create a perfect world, they never quite get it right. They are unable to deal with the reality of sin. Have you heard of the movies Elysium with Matt Damon and Jodie Foster or Dark City? Kiefer Sutherland, Never Let Me Go, Kira Knightley, Minority Report, Tom Cruise, Blade Runner, Harrison Ford, Matrix, The Lobster, Hunger Games, Metropolis, they all show a future that's messed up. Certain people get to have a great time, but the rest of humanity gets to suffer. They don't think that we're headed towards a utopian because you just don't deal adequately with the problem of sin. Nobody knows how to manage it except for the one we are worshiping here today. So, verse 22, he says, professing to be wise. This is kind of a progression that we're going to look at. Three-point downward spiral. First of all, professing to be wise, they became fools. People did. Changing the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made of like corruptible man. And birds and four-footed animals, creeping things. <sighs> They changed the glory of God. They decided, yeah, not interested. I think we'll just make our own God. Give me some wood. Carve a cow. Put some gold on it. Let's bow down to the cow. Give me a bank book. Dust it off. Put some good numbers in there. Bow down to the bank book. Whatever the, the idol is, we, we decided we're going to create a new God. He's kind of no fun. He doesn't want, let, want me to get away with all the stuff I want to do. We, we call ourselves enlightened or progressive or going to a next level, but we're just fooling ourselves. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up. He gave them up to uncleanliness, uncleanliness and in the lusts of their heart to dis dishonor their bodies among themselves. To exchange, the exchanging the truth of God for a lie, they just decide that, yeah, I, I see that, but I want this. And so... They worshiped and served a creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Certainly in the case of the Roman Empire and the Greek Empire, they worshiped the body. They worshiped the male figure. I mean, that was everything. Everything else was subservient to that. Women didn't have a place. Children didn't have a place. The male soldier and all that figure, that was, that was the epitome of amazingness. 
but it hasn't really stopped, right? Worshiping the body instead of the creation rather than the creator. There's people that you know, like Harvey Weinstein and Paul Bernardo and Jeffrey Epstein and Bernie Madoff and William Pickton and Augusto Pinochet, Ferdinand Marcos. Like they didn't start off in their life thinking, I'm going to be a sexual predator or murderer or embezzler or fraudster or corrupt dictator. They didn't start that place when they were a kid. But they ended up there because there was a progression of, of, of uh, deterioration from their, their mind and their desires and the, the things that they worshipped. And it caused misery to thousands of people. You can see the progression. They decided to worship created things, things they fashioned by themselves, things that satisfied their desires rather than the true God. They made up gods that were like them, and they could appease their own gods on their own terms. So I'm not a Sigmund Freud fan, per se, but he was observant. He studied a lot of people, and he was uh, no believer in uh, a deity or any kind of higher power. And his conclusion was that humanity created God in their own image. And I agree, 100% with one exception. <laughs> we didn't create Jesus, his father did. He re- Jesus was revealed to us. We didn't create God. He, he preexisted before humanity. He revealed himself to us. You know, you can create lots of God. I've seen pictures of gods all over the world in different temples and things, and they're so fantastical. They're kind of like, they're unbelievable, but those are what people decided to worship. God, the preexistent God, revealed himself to us and said, I want to redeem humanity that's going down the wrong road. You know, if, if we created Jesus in our own image, if we put words in his mouth, I was just thinking, how, how, how? It just doesn't even make sense to me. I mean, think of what he said. Who in their right mind would come up with, in Luke chapter 6, but I say to you, love your enemies. I say, no, let's, let's kill our enemies. Or do good to those who hate you. Like, no, get even with those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Um, yeah, I prefer the cursing to the blessing. Uh, pray for those who despitefully use you. Yeah, I'll pray, all right. I'll pray God will just bring the hammer down on them. All these opposite things of our, our normal kind of reactions to him who strikes you on the one cheek, give him the other cheek. To him who takes your, your coat, give him your cloak as well. That, that wouldn't come from a normal person. That, that would come from God. Because he's got a higher purpose. He's all about redeeming people, about loving people, about forgiving people. But humanity, oh, that's like, I'm, you know, that's maybe, those are platitudes. Those are nice ways of thinking. It's not reality going, yeah, it actually is. We can actually do these things. When God sets the standard for our behavior, what, what looks like righteousness, he determines that. When you turn your back on God, he gives you the freedom to walk away, to be your own God, to allow you to face the consequences of your own sin. It says he gives you up. One of the commentators says he gives up on you. He takes away his protection. He takes away his indwelling spirit. He takes away all of the things that he would have given you to bless and lead, lets you be free to go down the wrong road because you continually rebel, rebel, reject, reject. He says, okay, okay, have it your way, and let's see what happens. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Without exception, we all have gone down this road at points in our life. And 
We still battle that sometimes. We still want to do things our own way. I want to break the speed limit almost every day. I want to take things from stores without paying for them. I would love to eat whatever I want to eat and watch whatever I want to watch and say whatever comes into my mouth to say. I want to get even with the people who annoy me or who hurt me, and I don't want to follow the rules that the government imposes on me and, and that the uh, companies and strata councils, because I deserve more. I'm special, and I want to do whatever I want to do. Have you seen that recently? Have you seen that with the riots that happened at the, at the Stanley Cup playoffs? Have you seen that in the Detroit riots in 67, the L.A. riots in 92, the 2020 riots in Portland, last year's riots in American capital? People want to do whatever they want to do. They don't want to follow anybody's rules. You know, protesting is, is good and, and honorable to do. But rioting is not. It's destructive. It is, I want to do whatever I want to do. And we've seen it on TV. That's humanity that God is trying to redeem and say, you've gone too far. I don't do those things because of the Spirit's indwelling presence in me. I, 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 I decide that I, I, I need to be good. I need to follow the rules. I need to do what, what, is, what is there for me to, that constrains me. It's the constraining presence of the Holy Spirit in me that stops me from doing the things that is going to ruin my marriage, that will, will get me fired, that will put me in jail, that will demonstrate anarchy. There's a constraining presence of the Holy Spirit in us, keeping us safe from ourselves. For this reason, it says in verse 26, God gave them up to vile passions. You know, it started with the lusts of the heart, and now it's moving to vile passions. It says, even their women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over again a third time to a debased mind. This moving from a, a lust to a, to a heart, to a mind that has just been corrupted. Doing the things that are not fitting. So a debased mind, a mind whose conscience is seared by sin, who defends, rationalizes their sin, who delights in more creative sin and rejects anything that smells like a restriction or a constraint on their life, it, it just de de degenerates progressively to, to immorality. And uh, we see that the people that have all the power, have all the money in some of these smaller countries, they do Anything and everything they want, regardless of how it impacts other people around them. It says in verse 29, but being, this is an example, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are worshipers, or sorry, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice these things are deserving death, not only do they do the same thing, but approve of those who practice them. Human trafficking, targeted shootings, these are happening in our neighborhoods, in our communities, honor killings. This is what happens when people are unrestrained, and this is what Paul is addressing. Those people going down the roads of unrestrained immorality, it leads to total destruction of society. 
This is why we need a gospel. Three times God says he gave them up to do what they want. When he gives up on people or gives them up, it's like their mind goes blind, deaf, and dumb all at the same time. There's no more reasoning, only overwhelming desire to satisfy lust and greed, anger and sex, and ever-increasing perverseness. And not everyone is there, clearly. Not everyone is in the third degree of immorality. Some are playing and dabbling with this first part where they're struggling against right and wrong, righteousness and unrighteousness, good and evil, light and darkness. They're struggling right on the borderline, and God is saying, come back, you know, come back. And, they're going, and then they, they take a step into, into the danger zone, and then they start playing with the next level, and then they, they go down to the next level. Not everyone gets there. They have some kind of conscience left. Not all the time, God is trying to pull them back with his spirit. He's, he's sending people as reminders of what is true and what is good. The three stages that I'm talking about. First, people exchange glory for corruption, verse 23. They worship the creature rather than the creator. People thought they were so smart, yet they became fools. And next, they exchanged truth for lies. They, they take the Bible and say, it doesn't really mean what it says. Oh, it's archaic. Oh, it needs to be updated. This isn't really truth. It's just principles for you to live by. God wants you to be happy. This is what we do when we exchange the truth for lies. Let the Bible speak for itself. That's what we're doing today. We're just reading what the Bible says. We're not trying to wash it, whitewash it, or minimalize it. The third thing is they exchange, they exchange glory for corruption. They exchange the truth for lies. You know, uh, one of the lies that people are dealing with today is that their, their identity is, is determined by what they do, what their passion is, what they're involved with. Rather than who they are in Christ, God creates us and makes us his child. We are a child of God first. And, and our behavior reflects on what our passions or our desires are, if we're righteous or if we're evil or what it is, but we, we shouldn't be defined by what we do. But the world says, yes, you are. If, if, if you like to drink too much, well, you're an alcoholic. If you want to sleep with your neighbor's wife, well, you're an adulterer. If you feel like taking what doesn't belong to you, you're a thief. But in reality, it's more like we're a child of God who drinks or who has sexual issues or who, who wants to steal, but we're still first a child of God. He's trying to bring us back to that identity. It says then they, lastly, they exchange natural things for unnatural in verse 26 to 28. And the world is constantly trying to normalize sin, to say it's just fine. It's just a natural part of who we are, and why should you fight against it? Just do what you feel you need to do. They rationalize uh, doing unnatural kinds of things. God is the one who gets to define what is normal or what is natural. So when people think, well, the Bible says this is what's natural, they say, well, let's just, we'll just get rid of the Bible. Well, God says, well, let's just make a new God then because that God is, uh, is too restricting. There's a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. She wrote a very interesting article called Are We Living Out Romans Chapter 1. She lived a life contrary to um, what God would have her to live and she came up against Romans chapter 1, the one we're reading right now, and said it transformed her whole opinion of what was, her life was and what she was following after. And she says this, Our sinful nature wants us to chase after the things that God hates. Committing sin hardens our hearts so that we no longer consider God anymore. 
Ongoing sin in our life deadens our soul and mind and heart, trapping us, changing our identity into whatever it is we chase after. Satan offered Jesus three amazing temptations. He could have walked down three different roads and got money and power and influence. But the truth of God's word came up against the lies of Satan and dispelled all three of them. I like what 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says. You read that whole list of things again about the pride and the anger and all the different things. And, and Paul uses that when he talks to the church in Corinth. And he says, that's what some of you were. That's what some of you were like. But, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So finding out who we are in Christ is paramount to having the amazing life that God has to, uh, to offer us. Uh, Butterfield goes on to say, we believe that God's elect people are everywhere and can be pulled out of any sin pattern into a righteous life by the work of Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. No matter how lost someone appears, we know where there is life and hope. We know that the gospel comes with offense, and while we do not relish in offending anyone, we understand that gospel offense pricks hearts and minds in order to draw sinners to Christ. The offense of the gospel is our wake-up call to reality. Like there's a battle always between right and wrong, light and dark, truth and lies. There's always a battle in this world. So what is the good news? Why is Paul walking down this dark road of, look at all this yuck and muck that the world can get into? He's saying, because there's hope. There's a way out of that. You don't have to get stuck. There's good news. Jesus died on the cross for our sins so that if we believe in him, we could not only have eternal life, but we could find our identity and our purpose and our fulfillment in him out of his amazing and all-encompassing love for us. Jesus defines us in his way, in his time, in his purposes. Figure out who you are in Christ first and let him outline the rest of your life in him. Our identity is not constructed or discovered. It is revealed by God, and it involves our total person, mind, soul, body, and spirit. Paul is saying there's so much more to life. You're going to get stuck in the world's muck and, 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 and yuck in your life, or you can step out of that and put your feet on the solid rock of Christ Jesus and let him guide you through life. Teenagers and young adults have a lot of questions about Things in community and in our schools and in our country. And they're asking good questions. They're valid questions. Who am I? And who, what am I supposed to What's my purpose in life? But the world doesn't have any answers. It just has more questions. Here's what I know to be true. First, God loves every person and has a wonderful plan for their life. Regardless of how you feel or what you've done, you are his child. Second, the world's ways lead to death confusion, and destruction. They never lead to life. It's deception from the very beginning. Third, you can have a wonderful life in the hands of God if you follow his plan. Sexual immorality will destroy you. Covetousness and envy will destroy you. Holding grudges and being deceitful, whispering behind people's backs and being unloving will destroy you. It just lead to death of relationships. Long ago, I realized that I don't get to have my choice in about who I get to be. I, if it was my choice, I would love to be a chaplain in, on a Pacific island 
um, in a resort ministry, sharing the gospel with people, uh, with the waves crashing, uh, pina coladas and uh, palm trees around. Like That would be my dream of ministry. Just come to me, Chaplain Thomas, here in his beach chair, wiggling his toes in the sand, listening to the waves coming in, watching the seagulls. Yeah, that's my idea of having a, a nice life. No worries. Just someone send me a check uh, monthly, take care of my bills. But I know it's not about me. It's about what God has planned for me. How he decides for me to serve him, to honor him, to represent him in the places he's chosen for me to go, to raise my family, to honor him and to know him as he has revealed himself in his word, not some God I made up to scare them at night. You better be good or God's going to get you. That's not the God I serve. He's a God that keeps drawing me into his presence, forgiving me for my sin, restoring me, helping me to be on, on the pathway that he wants us to be. That's all, just letting the Spirit of God fashion my life to be more like Jesus every day. I just need to cooperate with God and keep saying yes every time he calls. Colossians 3.11 says this. Here, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. doesn't matter what title you have, where you come from, but Christ is all and in all. Our identity doesn't revolve around Anything but being a follower of Jesus. If that's not where your starting place is, then you're already on the wrong road. Paul's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the truth. It's the answer. It's the power of God to transform the darkest heart and the most corrupt mind and the worst perpetrators of evil. It's the power of God applied to man's unrighteousness and bringing us into a right relationship with God. Butterfield finally says, the just will live by faith. This means we put more stock in God's providence and in God's character than our own individual point of view. So why do you need to know this? Why do we need to know any of this? Because our unrighteousness cost God the life of his 